1: Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Brian and Joel O'Donnell from Belpont. Uh, It's April 6, 2019. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. Uh, And we're going to start you off with a nice, easy question, which is why wine?
2: Why? (laughs) Well, I I could start. I I, kind of got interested in wine when I moved from uh, New York to California in the late uh, 70s. Ended up in um, Silicon Valley, which is also at the um, obviously known for high-tech, but it was a uh, one of the earlier wine-growing regions of California. And uh, the Santa Cruz Mountains, which surround Silicon Valley, remain probably the, the best, in my judgment, appellation for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the whole state of California. Uh, so, you know, it's just on making weekend excursions up into the mountains. uh, Places like Ridge Vineyard, David Bruce, Mm -hmm. uh, and other uh, local wineries. uh, I kind of got interested in uh, in wine and and the whole process. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, I lived with, uh, I grew up in Minnesota, so not really a very wine uh, state, especially back uh, in the 70s. um, And, but I lived with an aunt that I had uh, uh, in uh, Los Gatos, California, and she was very much into food and wine um, years ago, um, and so kind of just sparked the uh, interest. Um,
1: when did you get to the point that you actually wanted to make your own wine?
2: <coughs> so for me, it was, it was the um, mid-80s. Mm-hmm. Um, I always had some interest in it, and. Uh, Finally, actually had a, bought a house, still living in an apartment in 1986. So, had a place to actually do it. Uh, in my garage and basement, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we met some uh, some mutual friends of ours. were part of the uh, homebrew local homebrew uh, scene in um, in the San Francisco area, as well as were home winemakers. Mm-hmm. So, through through this group of friends, we kind of got uh, got started. Um, in both, both home brewing and winemaking. Sure. I think the first wine I made was 1986 uh, in my in my garage and basement.
0: And that and that was before I, I knew Brian, so we met through beer beer home b- beer making um, through this club, and then he was already making wine. So, um, but it just kind of dovetailed on my general <laughs> <laughs> interest in it.
1: Why Why did you end up going though? Wine route instead of st- instead of beer, or do you still do both?
2: Oh, we we do both, but but the um, the yes, we brewed home brewed quite a bit. Um, never really thought about doing it professionally. We were m- more um, inclined to the you know the, the um, you know, kind of the vertical vertical integration piece of vineyard and winery, you know, growing grapes, making wine, and kind of doing everything, and, uh, you know, complete control of raw ingredients through
1: final product. So did you ever think you were going to actually enter the wine industry and make wine to sell professionally?
2: Yeah, you know, you know uh, uh, speaking for, for Joel here uh, as well, you know, we kind of hashed the plan in the late, eight, late 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, move, moved here with the intention of doing, you know, moved here in 1992 with the intention of doing pretty much exactly what we're doing right now. So it was kind of a, the original idea was sort of a retirement project, but it was really a midlife career change, <laughs> more than a retirement project, it's certainly working as hard now as we ever did back in uh, harder. Um, or harder yeah. back in the, uh, in the high-tech days. Sure.
1: So when you decided to make that move, what, what was the step, why, why did you choose Oregon, why did you choose the location you're at, and how did you go, kind of go about the first step into actually doing it for a living?
2: Let me keep going. <laughs> what was your? <laughs> yeah, so so the um, um, when, when we made, made the decision it was kind of late, uh, you know, very late eighties, nineteen eighty nine. After the big earthquake in, in California, and just thinking we got to get out of this place. It's crazy. Um, so there were a couple of uh, we had a couple of criteria. One was we had to be able to do it in a place where we could maintain our our high tech jobs through the transition. Uh, So that kind of uh, limited the options a little bit and really was, uh, probably came down to Sierra Foothills Mm -hmm. in California and then uh, Latin Valley uh, in Oregon. Uh, I was working for Intel's with Packard. Both of them had facilities and uh, critical mass Mm -hmm. uh, here in this area. Mm -hmm. And the Oregon thing just happened to pop up first. Um, uh, Someone uh, got an offer to to move up here with a new division starting up. And, you know, we came up here and... and, uh, it was probably about this time of year, I think. It was early April.
0: Mm-hmm. It was just mm-hmm.
2: beautiful, or, or early spring. And the thing that a couple things really uh, hit me. One was the the the, the focus uh, uh, in in this region on Pinot Noir. Um, it was unlike uh, you know the, uh, the other place we're considering, which Sierra Foothills, which is taking really a complete shotgun approach mm-hmm. to one group. They'll probably grow forty different varietals, and none of more none of and been more than like five percent of the acreage. Mm-hmm. Whereas here it was a very, very, um, a very serious, uh, very focused effort with Pinot Noir. And that was very appealing uh, to me. You know, Coming from the high-tech background where they, they just drill into the idea of focus, 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 focus. Uh, that was already happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was already existence proof that great wines could be made here uh, and were being made here. Mm-hmm. So um, it just all sort of came together. Um, you know, certainly the, the uh, land values uh, here. You know, the, the, the price of an acre of good grape land was probably one-tenth of what it was in Sonoma County uh, at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was certainly very attractive as well. Sure. You know, we pretty much able to take our little bungalow and, and little two-bedroom bungalow in San Jose, California and trade it straight across for an old 70-acre farm. Sure.
1: What were your first impressions uh, of Oregon and of the industry when you, when you got here?
0: Yeah, I mean, similar, similar to uh, Brian. There's a lot of collegiality and and support from other people. Um, You know, people are very passionate about what they're doing and and eager to share ideas Mm -hmm. and talk about things. So, so not coming from, you know, having trained uh, for uh, professionally winemaking or even anything in the industry. Um, It seemed very uh, possible to kind of learn and by asking questions and forming relationships with other people up here and Mm -hmm. um, so it seemed approachable. Um, And I'd say a lot of that kind of shared um, uh, uh, where, you know, we're better as an industry if we come together, um, Mm -hmm. seems like that still exists to a great extent today.
1: What was the learning curve like when you, you got up here, you had your property, you had, you had acreage now? What was the, did, did you feel like you were pretty much ready to go at that point, or was there still a lot you had to learn all, along the way?
2: Yeah, I mean, the learning curve, especially on the, on the vineyard side, was, was very steep. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, Jill lived on a farm um, for part of her childhood growing up, but I, I came from really. New York City. Uh, I did you know, as the saying goes, I didn't know hay from straw uh, when we got here. Literally. Um, <laughs> but we were, we were fortunate to, I don't know how we got connected with, with these guys. Uh, Joel Myers, who's mm-hmm. um, um, been in the growing grapes here for, uh, for, for a long time, worked mm-hmm. originally with Tiki rat. Mm-hmm. Um And, and I, think, I think we somehow through, got connected with Joel and asked him for to help us get going. And he was too busy, but he said, Hey, but I got another guy I know, a guy named Wayne Cook, mm-hmm. uh, who grew up in Newburgh uh, and uh, Joel and Wayne were two of the original vineyard people uh, in, the, in the valley. And I think Joel worked for Erath and Wayne worked for Sokolblosser. Mm-hmm. I think he was their first employee um, and so he, he basically you know worked with us and taught us how to how to farm grapes and how to grow grapes um, and he, he was kind of in a unique situation unique situation because his real passion was uh, white water rafting um, and so he wanted to be able to have a job where he could, you know, he could disappear for two weeks on, on like a two days' notice and, and go run a river somewhere. Um, so he, you know, he, he had been he had worked for vineyard management companies along the way, but he was sort of doing his own little consulting gig at the time, helping a few small people out. Um, so he was he was the guy that really got us started and mm-hmm. taught us how to uh, how to farm wine grapes. Um, and then after after a couple of years we had to kind of relearn again because uh, his, his approach was fairly conventional mm-hmm. um, and you know we decided you know 20 years ago we wanted to take an organic route uh, so we had to kind of learn uh, kind of relearn the whole process uh, at that point sure but i mean the fundamentals are basically the same just the tools were a little bit different so
1: was the process what you hoped it would be i mean once you was it when when you're thinking in your head, I'm going to move up to Oregon. I'm going to get a acreage. I'm going to put in grapes. I'm going to make wine. Was it what you hoped it would be, or was it was it something different?
2: Yeah. Well, you were the vineyard manager at the
0: beginning. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I don't I don't know that I came with any preconceived ideas mm-hmm. in, in terms of you know it was going to be what it was going to be. Um, uh, it was uh, you know our first attempts at like laying out the vineyard and trying to get things. You know, lined up and and squ- squared off so that our rows would be straight and uh, make sure there's room for the tractor to get down. And, and realizing how critical it is that each plant has to be exactly in line, but you're out there working in a very uneven mm-hmm. um, natural landscape. Um, you know, that was actually probably one of the. Trying times. For, I mean, certainly, like a, does that, uh, a recipe for maybe a marriage uh, disruption. <laughs> um, but we made it through that. <laughs> um, uh, and the, just like the veracity of like uh, the the blackberry shrubs that are, you know, kind of ubiquitous now in mm-hmm. the Willamette Valley, um, and you know that's still an ongoing problem. And then the and then the squirrels um, that dig holes and trenches throughout the vineyard. Um, sure. Those, uh, you know, I mean, I didn't really anticipate those, but, <laughs> but they're they're a big, uh, somewhat of a challenge. Sure. Um, yeah.
1: You mentioned going growing organically and deciding fairly early on to do that. What what was the impetus to that, and what were the ch- what were the added challenges in trying to grow organic grapes?
2: Yeah, I think the real impetus was uh, when our daughter was born in 1999 and, you know, going out and buying organic milk. And then we're saying, but we're using Roundup on our vineyard. That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's when we kind of started to get interested in, you know, weaning. And and that was probably the biggest challenge, weaning ourselves off uh, herbicides. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the rest of the organic program is is relatively straightforward. But, you know, things love to grow here. And, uh, and weeds love to grow, so weed control was the, the big thing that we, the big challenge that we had, and in, in, in everyone does in, in converting. And you know, for a couple of years, we spent a lot of effort hand hoeing uh, to, to kind of get things under control. But once we got that, we were able to, to handle it through you know machine cultivation, mm-hmm. basically tractor-mounted devices that take care of you know, under under the vine row
0: yeah and even the hand hoeing you know there's this dilemma in your mind because that's so terribly hard for someone to do, and mm-hmm. it's you know hard on somebody's back, and it's um so is that worse or better than than you know spraying a, a chemical I mean, I don't know for us it was easier to say no to the chemical but but there is that little dilemma like, wow, you know what what's the real trade off here know mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Let's talk about your property. Uh, I know it's Mm -hmm. a a very old, you have a very old farmhouse, so let's talk about uh, the the original vineyard and how you chose your site and and then what you kind of, what you did first once you got up here.
2: Yeah, well the site, the site selection was was interesting. Um, we, We moved up here in the 4th of July 1992 and just lived in a little apartment in Beaverton and kind of spent the weekends Drive in the countryside either on our own or occasionally with realtors. Um, and you know, the, the whole vineyard market, if you will, wasn't as sophisticated 25 years ago as it is today. Right,
0: there was um, like one vineyard uh, specialist yeah, there, there one, in real estate.
2: One, one and a half people basically <laughs> who kind of specialized in this. Um, and the one was down south. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we spent a lot of time looking at places that were completely unsuited. And uh, the place that we're at now, we actually found uh, in the Capital Press, of all places. Mm. Um, the local ag newspaper was for sale by owner. Um,
0: Not as a vineyard site? Maybe as a potential. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, and yeah, so, that, that's, as we, so that's how we, we found that place. Basically, it wasn't through any of the realtors that were involved in it. It was for sale by owner in the Capital Press. Uh, we went out and looked at the property, met the met the folks who owned it, who actually were lived next door, mm-hmm. and they had bought this property I think five or ten, five years earlier as just an investment. Um, we were looking to, to to move it out to somebody they wanted to have as next door neighbors. Sure. So it was a kind of a whole dance we went through with, with them, <laughs> and uh, but it really came down to two properties. It was that property and the Archery Summit property, uh, which was both both available at the same time. They were both about the same amount, same price, roughly. Uh, the Archery Summit property was a little smaller. It was only about 15, 16 acres, uh, but it had two home sites on it, mm-hmm. which was a big benefit. Um, but ultimately, I think we were afraid that that property didn't have... You know, we needed, needed 15 acres for uh, for a winery. weren't quite sure it was the full 15 were there. Mm-hmm. Um, And then the the place right now, out in in Yammer carlton was, the property was bigger, it was 70 acres. Uh, There were, you know, beautiful oak trees, it was uh, original oak savanna, (laughs) that actually at the time we considered more of a liability than an asset. (laughs) Because we were just looking for vineyard land. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the, uh, you know, the other consideration certainly was the at the time, the conventional wisdom was that you needed red soils to grow red wine. And the the lighter soils on the side of the valley were okay for whites, but weren't mm-hmm. necessarily that great for red wine. Um, although we, but we had t- certainly tasted some wines made from, uh, from Elk Cove and from Wall Vineyard in our area, Shea was just getting star at the time. So there was, that paradigm was kind of starting to get turned on its head. Um, so we kind of take, took the risk on the... Um, uh, the Elmore-Carlton area uh, obviously wasn't established as an uh, Appalachian at the time, mm-hmm. um, and it was kind of the the, the wild, wild west of the of, uh, Willamette Valley wine region at the time. Um, I remember talking to Don Lang, and he was like, Carlton, where is that? <laughs> you know, he thought it was Colton on the other side of the valley. So, um, but yeah, so it was a little bit of a little bit of a risk, but but certainly with with some existence proof that we could we could grow you know, really good Pinot Noir there. Sure. Um, and really, the areas were kind of growing up around us the time we've been there. So um, it's uh, it's changed quite a bit. And how did yeah. you come up with your name
1: when you decided to start making wine?
2: Yeah, so the the name um, was. The label came. Actually, the artwork for the label came first. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the folks we bought the place from, Bob, and, Bob, and Pilani. Uh, Pilani was a watercolor artist, and so you know, we saw her work when we first met them, and decided we wanted to get her to do a do a painting for the la- for our label. So she did that. Went and sat in the road, painted our hillside. You know, we had that, and then we said, okay, so now we need what What's the name of the winery? And we went around with little family names, which are uh, more Anglo-Saxon and Irish, so not, not that appropriate. Um, went around with place names, you know, Roland, Carlton, this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, we finally s- settled on uh, Bedpont, which was a beautiful slope. It was something we knew no one could pronounce. Um, <laughs> we figured that no one could pronounce Claude de uh, 40 years ago either, so that's not that big a, a problem. Um, but we wanted something that had a real strong connection to the place, uh, something with more of an old world uh, feel to it, um, for a couple of reasons. One being that the style of wine that we were intending to make was definitely more old world inspired, mm-hmm. um, a more elegance focused balance. Uh, at the time there was a trend in Willamette Valley, really across America, to make, make fairly heavily oaky extracted uh, Pinot Noirs. Not everyone was doing that, but certainly there was a the pendulum had swung very much in that direction. And we were against that grain completely since the beginning, uh, looking for wines so a little more elegance. And so we wanted a, a name that evoked some of those softer, gentler uh, connotations uh, and to give a kind of a clue as to the style of wine that we were intending to produce. Sure.
1: So once you got you got rolling what was the what were like some of the, the challenge, like the unforeseen challenges you talked about trying to lay straight lines and, and have tractor room what were some of the other things about uh, either the vineyard or the winery or the business that maybe you weren't expecting that you had to kind of deal with in the early years
0: well early early on uh, I, I had a part time job and Brian was working full time and uh, so just the, you know, how do you get the wine out in front of people um, that are gonna be buying it uh, when you're trying to, you know, wear, wear multiple hats. And, and uh, you know, I mean, it's an obvious uh, struggle, but, um, but real nonetheless. Um, <laughs> so, uh, um, not really that was unforeseen, but just, uh, just a, a bit of a struggle. Um, and you know, and you have to like slowly grow to a certain point, and then it's obvious. Oh, these day jobs aren't going to be compatible with uh, doing this. So we either have to like dive in and do it, or we have to scale it back and not do it. <laughs> True. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: How did you kind of? Uh, how did you figure out what your roles were going to be? Uh, in the growing business, and, and h- who, how did you choose who did what? And did that happen naturally, or was it kind of like oh, I'm going to do this and you're going to do that kind of situation?
2: Yeah. yeah, it somewhat grew a little bit organic. I, 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 I was always basically uh, on the the winemaker mm-hmm. um, uh, in the early days. Uh, Jill basically did all the vineyard uh, tractor work, took care of the vineyard in the early days, and um, that was sort of the division. Uh, initially, and it wasn't really a b- uh, business to run at the time, we was just like getting, getting, getting mm-hmm. going. Um, you know, where our daughter was born, um, that's that's when we uh, started, uh, you know, Joel was obviously not going to drive a tractor for at least a couple of months. Um, and that's when we, we started uh, transitioning and starting to, to grow and, and hiring people and getting mm-hmm. a team, and a very small team. Um, but, you know, hired a, a vineyard foreman. And we hired Marcel in 2000?
0: Yeah, maybe, yeah, 2002?
2: I think 2000. Yeah, pretty early on. So, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so we had, you know, hired people, basically, who've been, somewhat, some of whom are still with us uh, now, um, to do the vineyard side. And I kind of maintained the winemaking side. Um, so, yeah, so where we've kind of evolved to now is I basically oversee production, uh, Joel oversees the business, business management administration and we both share marketing <laughs> responsibilities. They kind of evolved kind of organically over time.
1: So let's talk about those two things then. Uh, let's, start, let's start with Brian. Uh, your winemaking philosophy, I'm assuming uh, you had something in mind when you started and it's probably evolved a little bit. You talked about kind of old world. Uh, so what is your winemaking philosophy? What is it you're trying to, trying to portray with your wine?
2: Yeah, it's, it's evolved a little bit, but uh, again, you know, it's sort of founded in, in traditional, whatever that means, Burgundian style uh, of Pinot Noir, um, you know, wines that are, uh, have adequate doses of, of fruit and forward appeal, mm-hmm. uh, but also built on secondary characteristics, built on what comes out of the ground, built on the, the, the soil, the subsoil and sort of the non-fruit attributes that these bring to the wine, being be able to highlight these um, uh, these, these aspects of mm-hmm. the different vineyards and the different sites. Um, you know, we've been f- we're fortunate uh, in not only establishing our own vineyard, but having a long relationship with the vineyard in Dundee Hills, mm-hmm. uh, owned by Michael and Robin Murto. Mm-hmm. And so we've been able to work with two sites that, that really represent the two major Soil and the two major aspects of geology and geography within the valley—you yeah. know, the Dundee Hills, uh, 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 volcanic soils, you know, sedimentary, and the Carlton marine sedimentary—and you know, work with those over years to really kind of understand the differences uh, between the two, uh, and trying to and trying to you know, tailor our winemaking techniques to really highlight the best attributes of both.
1: True. Sure. You mentioned the Murdos. I'm curious how when you were getting going, how you built relationships with them and other people you may have sourced grapes from, and how you make those relationships last as long as they did.
2: Yeah, I think we met them at a picnic. Um,
0: yeah, in the early days of, uh, like, Yam Hill wine growers, or I, don't, mm-hmm. I can't remember what the group was. Um, but, you know, we were, it was, people planting vineyards and trying to start wineries that would get together. and mm-hmm. um, They were, yeah, it was some picnic for some gathering, um, But and they had a little bit of fruit available but, um, before we were even a commercial winery, but we wanted to try to make wine um, just to get some practice with the, the fruit in the area, mm-hmm. so we uh, just formed a, that relationship. And, sure.
1: What, what was it you were looking for when it came to, you obviously had an idea in mind of what, what you wanted to make, so what was it you were looking for in the ground to make the wine you wanted to make? Was there a certain, you mentioned the soil, was there a certain elevation, was there a certain location you were looking for, or was it more a kind of a grape growing?
2: Yeah, you know, we didn't really know that much at the time. <laughs> um, you know, we, 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 uh, the one thing that I did, did know we wanted, if we could find them, were older wines. Mm-hmm uh was important. You know, the Myrta, uh Vineyard was planted in 1978. The uh, other vineyard that we worked with in the early days was Wall Vineyard in uh, Yammer Carlton, which was planted in 1974. <coughs> so at the time, these, these, these vineyards were already, um, you know, in the, the case of Wall, already 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the one unifying factor, if you will, that we were looking for. Um, and we, and again, again the, the, the great the sourcing thing grew organically. At one point, I think we were probably buying from half a dozen um, or more um, independent mostly small independent growers and over time we kind of whittled it down as our own vineyard came into production Mm -hmm. Um, and the the, the one that we maintained the relationship we maintained was uh, with the Mottos and again because the geology and geography is so significantly different between their site and our site Mm -hmm. so it really really let us explore the two you know, probably 80% of the of, of the grape growing uh, territory in the Atlantic Valley is either, you know, volcanic or marine sedimentary. And having one of each allowed us to you know, really learn the differences and present them to customers too. You know, we, we, have, we have friends and neighbors who so I respect greatly that make 20 or 25 different things than you want here in the water. Um But, you know, we've tried to keep it simple. So we tell a simple story of geology and geography and they were able to show two wines side by side, made essentially the same way. Mm-hmm. S- slight variations maybe in barrel selection, but essentially made exactly the same way to really highlight, you know, the, the differences in the site. Sure. And doing it side by side with two instead of trying to do it with one.
1: <laughs> sure. So Joe mentioned that you sort of started on the vineyard side and then moved into the business side. Did you was it something you were prepared for? Was it something that you had to de- kind of take classes for or something? Or did you, was it more of a kind of natural uh, takeover of the business? And, and, and what is your business philosophy, uh, as it were?
0: Um, hmm. I don't know that I have a philosophy. <laughs> Sell wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I pay the bills. <laughs> um, uh, I, I mean, my, my Education was uh, information technology, so kind of on the business side mm-hmm. of of uh, things, and uh, um, you know, it, it's not it's not what you get into making wine for. You know, you don't get into that to try to make sure that your taxes are done and your bills are paid. And, but it it has to be done. You know, it's part mm-hmm. of part of running a successful business. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, and it was something that i could do uh that that uh needed to be done anyway and you know raising a, a child um, so it kind of i don't know just kind of naturally mm-hmm. you know harvest the uh, the first year when our daughter was born um, I, we kind of naively felt like oh well she's going to be born in september so things will be the same in <laughs> the end of september and october as always but it you know, it's like, wow, you really can't do the hours and do the intensity uh, helping uh, make wine um, <laughs> with, a, with an infant. So, um, so that was really kind of the where, and maybe it's all for the better too. You know, by that time the winery was getting big enough where um, it was good to have more separation of mm-hmm. like, okay, this is Brian's job and, and his responsibility and this is my job and my responsibility. Mm-hmm. So then we weren't trying to, both uh, accomplish the same thing and butt heads on decisions. Sure. Um,
2: sure. Yeah, there's one thing on, on, on philosophy, it's not necessarily a business philosophy, but something we've um, developed o- over time is you know, we're a pretty small, uh, small operation, and we decided pretty early on that we really only wanted to do business. With people that would want to have a relationship, social relationship with, even if we didn't do business together. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and both on the cu- on the customer side as well as the supplier side. Uh, so that's been something that's kind of driven us to: do, do we want to work with these people? And okay, would we want to have them over our house for dinner,
0: mm-hmm.
2: or go away on a long weekend with them? Uh, and if the answer is no, then we generally kind of shy away from those.
0: Although yeah, we do deal situations. with the TTP and we wouldn't probably have them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: Probably good to deal with them anyway, though. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and you and you mentioned uh, small operations, small staff. You have no no hospitality staff. Uh, tell me a little bit about the kind of the choices you made in terms of keeping a really small uh, appointment-only kind of uh, tastings and, and and being the, 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 the makes you, that makes you guys the face of the operation all the way through. So tell me about how that came about. If that was something you consciously chose, or if it's just kind of a a result of being small and, and the advantages and disadvantages.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, when we first got started, um, there really wasn't critical mass Mm -hmm. in in uh, our area for, you know, for a taste, for a, quote, uh, tasting room. Mm -hmm. You know, Dundee, the the, uh, area there was, but in our neighborhood there was, I think there were two at the time. There was Mm Annamie and Elk Cove, and and that was pretty much it. Uh, So, you know, there wasn't enough... Kramer. And Kramer, yeah, I guess Kramer, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there's prob- probably a couple of others, but mm-hmm. not not a, not a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there definitely wasn't a critical mass in Carlton, where Carlton now has you know the nine seven one one zip code. I think has more wineries than any other zip code in Oregon, um, but at the time there wasn't. Uh, so we we kind of had in the early days decided that we weren't gonna you know try to have uh, a tasting room. Um, that We were gonna you know focus on sort of three you know, three tiers of distribution, doing the direct sales through open houses and appointments, mm-hmm. um, focusing very much on the local um, Portland, greater Portland uh, market, and then developing out-of-state relationships. Um, you mm-hmm. know, so we're working kind of all three of those mm-hmm. and not um, uh, being, you know, primarily focused on, um, on hospitality or, or direct sales. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly today there, there is more, um, mass of, um, of tasting rooms in, in the area, and you know we've kind of talked back and forth about should we go down that? Really not. Um, and to date, we haven't. Um, and because when people come out, uh, they're, we're basically able to offer people a little different experience mm-hmm. than, than you get going up to a tasting bar. It's not for everyone, uh, but there are people who are, I would say, kind of more advanced uh, consumers who really appreciate the experience of being able to talk to, the, to somebody that's intimately in involved in the business as well as the winemaking and the wine-growing. So mm-hmm. there's no question they get asked that will go unanswered. Sure. Um, sure. And there are people that really appreciate the fact that we take time and, and, um, and, and personally meet them and greet them and, and explain to them what we're doing and show them the wines. Sure. And then, you know, the, we have well, a neighbor to the south of us probably has 20 people on hospitality staff. And that's just a lot to manage, <laughs> you know, we like to keep things simple, you know, we, our, our operation now, we basically have two, uh, two key people, um, a vineyard foreman who's been for 20 years, an assistant, uh, a, winemaker, a winemaker who also does probably 20% hospitality mm-hmm. as well.
1: So you mentioned kind of the focusing on inter, uh, out of state and Portland area distribution. I know the distribution model has changed pretty greatly since you started. Have you, has that still been able to work for you in terms of being able to sell your wine uh, outside of the outside of your not your hospitality, your own hospitality? Are you still able to get your wine out of out in the stores and into restaurants?
2: Yeah, you know it takes mm-hmm. uh, a lot of care feeding. It doesn't happen automatically, um, and. Uh, yeah, there's certainly. You know, certainly more and more people trying to uh, trying to uh, get to the same you know group of sommeliers in Portland and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and retail shops. Uh, I remember one point about ten years ago, one of our best customers is a sommelier, at one of the top restaurants in town. He says, you know, I just stop seeing people. And so, any new person who comes in with with wine, uh, I just say, hey, my wine list is on the door. Here's my markup. You go look at that. You tell me who you're going to knock off that list, and you leave me a bottle, and I'll taste it and I'll get back to so you. I, I just don't want—I don't want to be, you know, like that. But I just don't have time. There's so mm-hmm. many new people coming in. Mm-hmm. So I think when, when we started in the local market, it was—it was easier. Uh, there were fewer people, and you know, we developed relationships 20 years ago that you know we're still working with today, mm-hmm. and, and then developed more along—you uh, know—along the way. You know, out of state, the, 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 there's been a lot of consolidation in distribution. Um, but the, and the whole market is really, is really I think, diverging I- into you know, really big distribution companies selling to big box stores and big chain restaurants, and then smaller boutique wholesalers who are selling to owner operator wine shops, mm-hmm. owner operator restaurants and you know, some very kind of high-end resort, uh, resort properties that uh, have, have very focused wine programs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
1: it's definitely uh, moving in two different, two very, very different directions. Sure, sure. So you mentioned your daughter, uh, who now is involved in your business as well. Uh, I'm curious <laughs> how that came to be, if she, Wanted to be in charge of your social media, or if uh, you uh, wanted someone in charge of social media and found her, and, and uh, if you hope, if she, you think she's going to sort of continue in the family business.
0: Well, she's a uh, uh, she's a freshman in college, mm-hmm. so um, she's got a ways to go. <laughs> uh, her her passion right now is uh, neuroscience. Um, so uh, the
2: social media thing is kind of a joke.
0: Well, not, it's not entirely, though. I mean, the, the well, serious the, the part director, about it... Well, the director
2: of social media marketing, <laughs> that's a joke.
0: Well, the, but the serious part about it is that she can quickly put a little post on our Instagram account, and she can um, quickly, uh, you know, keep things moving on that end that Brian and I don't do. So um, it's well-earned, and, and uh, <laughs> she, she does a good job. Um, and she's... Uh, uh, she's got little rules about you know how many times you can post, and, and mm-hmm. um, uh, so I, you know she's she's also I mean she's 20 years old, 19 years old, and and uh, so she has a perspective that we don't have, um, and so I think it's good. Um, I don't know if she'll ever really come back and be completely involved in the in the business or not, but um, she's certainly welcome to be. Sure. <laughs> yeah. um,
1: after anything else, she has a title that will look good on her resume at some point. Mm, right. But she's already been a director. She has
0: been headhunted already. <laughs>
1: yeah, she's been headhunted. it oh. great. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Because of that. You had mentioned earlier, the, um, a couple times, sort of the uh, uh, issues that being a married couple in business together and, and potentially butting heads and, and you've made it this far, and congratulations. That's not always true in the industry, of course. We know it's a tough industry on married couples, so I'm curious uh, how you've made that work. What is, what's, what's your secret to uh, being a married couple in the wine industry?
2: Boy, that's a good question. I mean, I remember I think it was Jim Marsh who said that the uh, wine business is a graveyard for marriages. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was one of his quotes. <laughs> that's right. um, and, but him and Loey, um mm-hmm. stuck it out. Mm-hmm. Um, they're certainly certainly the exception. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, the uh, tr- you know, trying to um, maintain a little bit of separation between personal life and business, I suppose. Although we don't
0: always do that as well as we could, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't think we think about it, and I don't think we think about it as an accomplishment. <laughs> it's just <laughs> we do our life. <laughs> yeah, I don't know.
1: Um. That's good, nonetheless. Um, yeah. uh, where do you see Valpont? Uh in the future, what do you what do you see when you look down the road at your business in the next 10, uh, five, ten, fifteen years?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Obviously the succession you know model is is uncertain. Mm-hmm. Um you know, t- uh, typically, you know, I have no idea if our daughter is gonna eventually want to be involved in the business. This was kind of our thing um that we did and you know, we're letting her basically go and pursue her own mm-hmm. Dreams, which include medical school and Doctors Without Borders and doing research, and um, so we're not you know, uh, trying to say no, you can't do that. You gotta, you gotta take care of this stuff here. Um, but and, and typically, you know, a lot of kids who grow up in the wine business have to go away and do something else, um, and then they kind of look back and go, wow, you know, I actually had a pretty good deal back there, mm-hmm. um, and come back and, and want to get involved in the business. So that may happen, may not happen. Um, I think in in the the interim, you know, our goal has always been to 100% estate Mm grown. So, I think at this point we we really have no plans to expand and start buying grapes from different appellations and and grow the business that way. But we're going to go the opposite direction and just kind of focus in Mm -hmm. focus in more on on our our property, the estate grown wines, and you know really. Cooperative relationships, perhaps with a couple of smaller, uh, smaller independent growers mm-hmm. as well, but but definitely more, yeah, more focus. And then you know, in terms of you know, what happens, 10-15 years. Yeah, s- stay tuned because <laughs> there, there are multiple, multiple scenarios. Sure. sure.
1: Uh, what about the industry in general? Where do you see Oregon wine as you look down in the next 10 15 years? What do you see happening to the industry at large?
2: You know, uh, you know, Oregon wine is sort of this nebulous uh, thing to me. I think you know, Willamette Valley is, again, a very, very focused area. Um, there's been you know, more and more focus on Willamette Valley. Um, and you know, we, we've, uh, we, we just did uh, some events down in Colorado. And just as an ex- uh, uh, um, kind of a
0: unscientific
2: unscientific uh, <laughs> focus group experiment, you know, we just and when people came up and asked us where we were from, we reporting this event, would sometimes say Oregon, or would sometimes say Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. We, we said Oregon, people would just kind of give us this blank stare. We said Willamette well, Valley, we'd go, oh, awesome. Uh, so the um, you know clearly the work that's been done to establish Willamette Valley um, has been. Um, you know, very very successful. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the, um, if I remember correctly, um, you know David Lett founded Ivory Vineyard the same year that Mondavi founded Robert Mondavi founded Mondavi Winery, mm-hmm. and and certainly the the, the 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 California the Napa and Willamette Valley have grown in very different directions, but at the end of the day they've kind of created the two iconic American wines: you know, Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon and Willamette Valley Pinot Noir. Um, and I think the the esteem uh, around that about, around one well, in Pierre Noir will just continue to uh, to grow mm-hmm. uh, and expand mm-hmm. and that's you know uh, very exciting mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any, any thoughts on the future for either yourself personally or the business or the industry
0: um, yeah I mean I think Brian kind of addressed the the industry side. I mean, we'll see. There's uh, certainly the dynamics are different um, today than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but life changes, so you know nothing ever stays the same. Um, uh, but I think there's a, you know, there's still a lot of potential and, and upside for the Willamette Valley Oregon wine industry. Um, it's still is still an exciting um, place of uh, an industry to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of great collaboration. You know, there's a uh, emphasis, a uh, number of producers on uh, Chardonnay, uh, a little bit on Rieslings, um, and still, you know, the still the ever um, elusive kind of effort to make Pinot Noirs better and better. Um, so it's nice, you know, people still work together and mm-hmm. there's still a lot of collaboration. So that's, that's nice to be a part of. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yeah. yeah, and it's really a lot of the, the, the things you see on the distribution and, and sales side uh, are also translating to the production side. So we get people, you know, getting bigger acquisitions and, you know, we're, we're all, sometimes I feel like we're an endangered species, you know, the, uh, the kind of the small, uh, Family-owned and operated mm-hmm. an operation around the valley. There, you know, 20 years ago, there was probably 80 percent of the uh, wineries, mm-hmm. and then it's fell into that category. Now it's probably closer to 20. Mm-hmm. I and mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but I, you know, start thinking, thinking of who is still doing th- doing what we're doing mm-hmm. uh, right now, it's fewer and fewer. Certainly, every year.
1: As you look into the future for the industry, are there are there Problems, challenges, obstacles that you foresee on the horizon that you're going to have to, over, either you or the next generation is going to have to overcome, is there something lurking that you're concerned about? Is that, is for example, that kind of consolidation, is that a concern to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that not really, uh, to be honest, um, because I think everyone's going to find their, their niche in their market. Um, and, and again, I look at the people we sell wine to, it's not the same... People that some of the bigger operations uh, sell wine to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it goes to different channels, and different, different places. Uh, so I'm not really concerned. I mean, obviously the, the the sleeping giant is, is climate change and what's gonna you know what's gonna happen. Are we gonna be able to grow Pinot Noir here successfully 50 years from now? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know, certainly an unknown at this point. You know, we we've, we've um, adjusted viticulture techniques. Um, along the way, um, and we'll we'll continue to. Uh, so I think we have still a fair amount of headroom for Pinot Noir in Willamette Valley. We mm-hmm. have 20 years. I don't know if we have 50. Um, so so we'll see. But that's sure. certainly a concern mm-hmm. you know, for the long term. Um, you know, we're, we're in terms of what we're doing. We we're, we probably uh, have a little bit of acreage that's not planted yet, and we're probably going to plant it to Gamay instead of Pinot. Mm-hmm just as uh, a little, little diversification. Sure. You know, Gamay ripens 10 days after Pinot. Um, you look at the map of France, you got Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Chardonnay, Gamay. And then there's a long gap before you get down to like Syrah, and Grenache, and other things. Uh, so it's kind of the next logical step, I think, mm-hmm. to stay within the, the realm of what we're doing, but have a little bit of a hedge mm-hmm. against the increasingly warmer warmer growing seasons.
1: All right. Well, that's all the questions that I have prepared for you. Uh, is there anything else I should have asked? Anything you'd like to mention here? Uh, open forum, open microphone. Uh, any last thoughts?
0: So one one thing that will maybe come into play a bit is the whole um, packaging. I don't know. I don't know how that'll end up. But there's real concerns with, you know, um, glass and the weight of it and mm-hmm. transporting it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. I think there there's... Um, and people are experimenting in a big way with with other packaging options, cans, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that'll be interesting to see how that ends up um, impacting the industry sure. if it does much. I don't know. Which um, yeah. just kind right.
2: of a broader thing that it's not you know Oregon or that Right. Or it's True. Right. a Broader. Um, and you wine wine industry concerned.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh,
2: but certainly, I think that there are a lot of things that um, play to, or, to play to Willamette Valley and Oregon, really overall Oregon strengths going forward. The sort of the perception that we're uh, you know, smaller scale, uh, more uh, artisanal, um, is something that you know, seems to appeal to you know next generation mm-hmm. uh, wine consumers. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely.
1: Well. Thank you both so much. Really thank appreciate you. your time and your answers and your candor, uh, and we will uh, let you off the hook.
2: Any questions for anybody oh, in the yeah. back that you're dying to ask?
1: Yeah. Actually, anybody back? Anything I didn't cover? Thoughts. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you both so much. We really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success.